My name is Kirby Ferguson, and welcome to Copy This, the podcast about copyright. The show is brought to you by the Recreate Coalition. Copyright is often thought of as being about restriction. It prevents us all from just selling or redistributing any book, movie, album, or game we want. Copyright protects creators from immediately being knocked off by competitors who don't actually create. But there's actually more to copyright than this. It's not just about enforcement. There are also limitations and exceptions to copyright. This can be thought of as balanced copyright. It's this system of balanced copyright that has helped foster the United States' massively innovative, diverse, and productive creative economy. For instance, here in the US, we have a doctrine called fair use. This gives us the ability to use copyrighted works in limited ways for transformative purposes, such as parody, commentary, and criticism. Fair use also does other things, like allowing teachers to show copyrighted works, like Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream today. A recent study found that fair use industries add 2.8 trillion to US GDP, and 18 million American workers benefit from fair use. Balanced copyright also includes safe harbors, which give digital platforms a process to handle copyright infringement. As long as they follow safe harbor laws, they can't be sued just because some of their users are violating copyright. We're negotiating a NAFTA deal. It's time after all of these years, and we'll see what happens. NAFTA renegotiations are now taking place, and some American interests are intent on exporting U.S. copyright law to Canada and Mexico. But unfortunately, their focus has been on the restrictions of copyright, not its accompanying balance. The result could be to the detriment of American jobs and the economy, as well as culture and innovation in Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. Here to discuss this topic further is lawyer Michael Geist. Michael is a professor of law at the University of Toronto. He is also Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and he is a longtime advocate for balanced copyright. Okay, so uh, catch us up to speed. What's going on right now with copyright and the renegotiations for NAFTA? Well, the intellectual property chapter, of course, is unsurprisingly, I think, one of the more contentious chapters that we're likely to see within the, the NAFTA renegotiation. There's some amount of mystery about the process, in part because under the Trump administration, U.S. priorities aren't entirely clear, and certainly the president has been talking a lot about walking away from the deal, which is causing a fair amount of consternation, in, certainly in Canada, and I suspect in Mexico as well. Even though we don't have a lot to go on yet in terms of what the USTR, which negotiates these agreements for the United States, is specifically asking for on intellectual property and particularly on copyright, there's, I think, a pretty good sense of where things are headed. In fact, we've seen some significant lobbying come from a number of groups that suggest that they are hoping to use these negotiations to make some pretty dramatic changes, certainly to NAFTA and potentially to the domestic rules, both in Canada and perhaps even in the United States. For people who, who don't know anything, what is the kind of the core contention here? What is the little conflict that's playing out? The U.S. approach has traditionally been, at least in the last number of years, been to point to its own domestic rules and to try to export some of those domestic rules to other countries, to whoever they happen to be negotiating with. Now, I'd say some because typically U.S. negotiators only want to export some of the rules. So they're very happy to export tougher rules to crack down from an enforcement perspective or increasingly to target intermediaries, far less likely to try to export things like fair use, 
which of course exists in the United States, but doesn't exist in, in some of the other countries it happens to negotiate with. What are the specific items that are controversial in, in Canada? Canadian law is not identical to the United States, and so we have some expectation that we'll see pressure to extend our term of copyright. At the moment, the term of copyright in Canada meets the international standard as found in Bern, but it's shorter than the U.S., approach. So we're at life of the author plus 50 years. There is some expectation that the U.S. will pressure Canada to extend that to its term of life plus 70. Similarly, Canada doesn't use the notice and takedown system that you find in the United States, but rather has a notice and notice system, which the U.S. seemed comfortable with in the TPP. They actually specifically referenced the, the provisions that are found in Canada as being acceptable. But there is some expectation that the U.S. will use this round of negotiation to, to push for an adoption of a notice and takedown system throughout North America and Canada and, the, and of course, in Mexico. Um, and then finally, we've seen some rights holders raise the specter of changing the, the rules associated with safe harbors for intermediaries. And even in Canada, we've seen at least one large telecom company talk about website blocking and greater uh, criminalization of copyright. So it seems that if you take a look at the landscape in terms of who's asking for what, there's a whole lot of possibilities, a whole lot of requests, and some of them could result in pretty dramatic changes if we end up going there. Ideally, what would you like to see come out of the, the IP chapter uh, in the agreement? Well, I think my starting point would be that NAFTA is the wrong place to engage in domestic reform. And so Canada has engaged in a lot of copyright reform in recent years and, and is scheduled to conduct a, a full review of its copyright law starting later this year, starting in November. And so the notion that, that we would, in a sense, outsource the domestic policymaking around copyright to far more secretive trade negotiations strikes me as simply the, a, a wrong-headed approach. It seems far more appropriate to have an open, transparent, inclusive approach to determining what's in Canada's interest. Mm -hmm. uh, if we have to have a, a, an IP chapter, change the IP chapter, I think I'd really start by saying that I think the best approach in trade agreements is to say that everybody has to meet international standards. And so that's where you get into fora, like the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, uh, who established benchmarks that are acceptable through consensus to all the various countries who participate. And ensuring that trading partners meet those standards strikes me as really reasonable. If we continue to face that pressure, though, then I think one of the positions Canada has to take is to say that you can't have only part of this. If we're going to pressure Canada and perhaps Mexico to adopt U.S. approaches, you've got to ensure that it face, that includes all the approaches. So that includes ensuring that there's language in, in NAFTA that talks about the need for balance, perhaps does, does away with what's known as crown copyright so that government works are openly and freely available in all countries, and that fair use becomes the standard. Because at the moment, it's a real advantage for innovative U.S. companies and creators, and it's one that Canadians don't have the same, can't take the same advantage of. So you've, you've already touched on this a bit, but can you explain a little bit about how U.S. copyright law is different from Canada and Mexico? Sure. So there's a number of, of ways that U.S. copyright law varies from its counterparts in NAFTA. One is copyright terms. So mm -hmm. actually all three countries in NAFTA have different terms for copyright. Uh, Mexico is actually life plus 100. Uh, so it goes even further than the United States, and the U.S. is at life plus 70. And as I mentioned, Canada meets the burn 
convention standard, the international standard of life plus 50. Uh, there's also differences with respect to limitations and exceptions like fair use. So the U.S. has the clearest version of, of fair use, which is, as I've mentioned, relied upon by companies to innovate, by creators oftentimes to create. In Canada, we have in a sense, the, what is seen as, a, as the equivalent, but it isn't quite as flexible. Um, that's what's known as fair dealing. And the, and the fair dealing approach has been interpreted in Canada as a user's right. Um, and so uh, our courts have talked about the need for balance in copyright and balancing between, on the one hand, creator rights and, on the other hand, user rights. And those user rights, including fair dealing, have, have been interpreted in a broad and liberal manner. So when it's applied, it applies actually quite broadly, perhaps similar, in a similar fashion in the way you would actually go through a fair dealing, dealing analysis. It's not totally dissimilar from how one would do a fair use analysis. The difference is fair use can theoretically apply to anything, whereas to qualify for fair dealing in Canada, only certain subject purposes will qualify, things like research, private study, education parody and satire and the like. And I guess the one other area that's worth mentioning in terms of some of the differences has to do with intermediary liability, in particular, the notice and takedown systems. And so U.S. has that notice and takedown system coming out of the DMCA. Canada had a chance to take a look at those rules and, and I think came to the conclusion that uh, there were a lot of problems with them. It's sometimes viewed as a, a shoot first and aim later kind of approach with a lot of takedowns. And we now know a lot of bogus takedown requests taking place. And so Canada was was interested in, in a mechanism that would educate the public about the boundaries of copyright and provide them in a sense alert where someone was of the view that they had violated their copyright, um, preserve their privacy so they weren't subject to the, the threats of lawsuits, and in a sense use the system more to educate as opposed to try to impose liability or create litigation. And thus was born what's referred to as the notice and notice system um, in which lots of notices get sent out where there are allegations of infringement and the, the public becomes more cognizant and aware of, of copyright law and the limits of the, their behavior online. Do you happen to know of any specific examples of what happens when a country like the U.S. exports a, a one-sided copyright framework? Well, sure. <laughs> the, the U.S. has tried to export one-sided copyright frameworks all over the place. <laughs> yes. so, um, and so we saw it in, we've, we've seen it in TPP, we saw, we saw it in ACTA. Uh, Australia provides actually a pretty good example of a place where the U.S. has used trade agreements to try to pressure for significant change. And in Australia... They had a first trade agreement in the early 2000s that uh, allowed for continuing flexibility in their approach, and the U.S. came back, and as part of the larger uh, trade agreement that it ultimately negotiated with Australia, demanded some significant change, and, and Australia ultimately caved. I think for a lot of countries, especially those that are um, still uh, developing from an economic perspective, uh, they look at these issues, and, and in a sense, they're 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 making, uh, they're they're seeing the short-term gains that come from greater access to the U.S. market, and in a sense, can live with the long-term pain that comes from more restrictive rules that may inhibit innovation and really limit the amount of creativity that comes out of that country. Um, and so, lots of countries may agree to it. It's in a sense just the price to be paid. Um, and they may look at it as saying that it's not what we'd ideally want, but at the same time, let's say we're an agricultural-based 
economy and the opportunity for greater exports there represents an opportunity that we can't pass up. The other thing, though, that I think we have seen in a number of countries, and this is reflective not just of pressure from the United States, but also what happens when you see the U.S. try to, and, and not just the U.S., but especially the U.S., engage in pressure at international levels, is that there's often a big difference between what's written on paper in terms of what the agreement says and how it gets enforced at a local level. And so very often you'll get countries that will have on paper the rules that the U.S. has demanded, and yet convincing a local judge to enforce, let's say, digital lock, anti-circumvention rules um, can be a difficult thing to do. And so there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect between, on the one hand, what the rules themselves say and then the ability to actually enforce them, which helps explain a little bit why the U.S. has been increasingly focused on the enforcement side of the ledger. And so that's why you get things like ACTA and you get other points of emphasis in the U.S.'s annual review of how other how it views other countries' intellectual property rules, known as the USTR Special 301 Report, sometimes called the Piracy Watch List. And very often, much of the focus is on complaints that judges and other enforcement agencies at a local level, they believe, are not doing enough to enforce the law. But of course, that requires countries, and especially at the, that local level, judges and others, to actually believe that this is in their best interest. And I think at, at a certain level, many of those countries feel, with with justification, that those rules have, have been imposed on them through very often secretive trade negotiations in which there's been no real opportunity for public input or for crafting rules that really reflect the national interest. Why do you think entertainment trade associations are lobbying against balanced copyright in free trade agreements? Well, those groups have been arguing against that for, for many, many years. And mm-hmm. in some ways, the, the Canadian experience actually helps, I think, explain why that is. So Canada engaged in significant reforms in 2012, adopting some, as I mentioned, of the U.S. demands, but also adopting some pretty innovative rules around user-generated content and damages and uh, intermediary liability and and flexibilities generally for fair dealing. And then what happens is that other countries have started to look at some of those rules and consider whether or not they might be appropriate options within their own jurisdictions. Um, I think some of those U.S. lobby groups see the prospect of something other than the U.S. model countries begin to say, you know, we don't have to follow this approach. There are other approaches out there from developed economies that seem to be succeeding, that have come up with thoughtful, balanced, progressive rules. That is viewed, I think, as a a threat if your goal is, by and large, to adopt the most restrictive enforcement-driven rules. And we've already seen other countries look at some of the things that have taken place in Canada and see it as a potential model. And so... The groups that, that are unhappy, not just with Canada, but with the possibility that, in a sense, some of those rules, whether from Canada or elsewhere, might spread to other countries, obviously go on the offensive when there is an opportunity to either change those domestic rules or use trade agreements to establish different approaches and then use that essentially as the benchmark when you begin to engage in other trade negotiations with some of the other countries. My thanks to Michael for being on the show, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time with more Copy This.